Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 5. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Every week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in NYC. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hey, what's up, New York City? This is Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute Live on WBAI. Revolutions Per Minute is a socialist radio show and podcast from members of the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States with 56,000 members nationwide. NYCDSA is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 5,500 plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Once again, my name is Amy Wilson. I use she, her pronouns, and I'm a member of the North Brooklyn branch of NYCDSA. Free abortion on demand without apology. For too long, the left has gone without a strong and well-organized response to the attack on abortion rights in the United States. Although abortion is technically legal nationwide, it is nearly impossible to obtain one in many states. Patients and workers must navigate medically unnecessary restrictions on abortions, harassment and violence from anti-abortion protesters, and the many social issues that complicate sexual health, reproductive freedom, and the decision to have or not have children. Ensuring access to abortion is about so much more than protecting Roe v. Wade. Today, I'll be talking to organizers from DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group on the Mass Strike for Reproductive Freedom, an ongoing campaign to reclaim the struggle for abortion access from ineffective liberal NGOs and ground this fight in a well-organized movement toward the liberation of the working class. But first, the headlines with Lee Zishi. While virtually every citywide agency faces major budget cuts in the mayor's latest proposal, the New York City Police Department's budget remains relatively unchanged. Criminal justice reform advocates have proposed cutting $1 billion from the police budget. The state Senate will finally reconvene this week after several months of allowing Governor Cuomo's emergency measures to stand unchecked. New York City Housing Court has begun virtual conferences to clear the backlog of cases that have piled up during the COVID-19 crisis. Many housing advocates worry that this is a prelude to mass evictions once the statewide moratorium is lifted. The city's statistics on coronavirus deaths by neighborhood reveal a predictable race and class divide among the casualties of the health crisis. The Second Circuit Court of Appeals has upheld a court, a lower court's decision to hold the presidential primary in New York this June 23rd. The nation covered New York City DSA slate of socialist insurgents in the June's Democratic primary. Tiffany Caban has endorsed Jessica Gonzalez Rojas in the race for the 34th Assembly District in Queens. This is Lee Zishi with the headlines on Revolutions Per Minute. Back to you, Amy. 
Oh, thank you so much, Lee. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredibly weekly newsletter by NYC DSA's Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. You can subscribe at thethorn.nyc. So uh, on today's show, we will be talking um, with organizers from DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group on the very important topic of abortion access. And um, before we dig into the meat of the show, I just want to give a brief note um, that this week marks the 11th anniversary of the assassination of Dr. George Tiller, who was a provider of abortions in Kansas. And he was killed while serving as an usher at his church on May 31st, 2009. So I'd like to dedicate the show um, to his memory and to all of those uh, medical professionals and workers um, who are working to provide uh, abortion in the United States. What is the left's approach to abortion access is the question that we're looking to examine on this edition of Revolutions Per Minute. For more on our campaign, the mass strike for reproductive freedom and the history behind organizing for abortion access, I spoke to my comrade and fellow organizer, Jen James. So let's go ahead and roll that clip. Hi, Jen. Good evening. Thanks so much for coming back on our panel. Yeah, of course. I'm uh, glad to be here. So um, you've been on our show before discussing other organizing, but uh, tell me about the campaign that you're representing on our show today. Yeah, so I'm here to talk about the Mass Strike for Reproductive Freedom. Um, it is a nationwide campaign. Uh, it's part of the Nationwide Socialist Feminist Working Group. Um, and we started organizing this campaign uh, about a year ago. Um back in around the same time, actually, uh, when there was that string of abortion bans, um, you know, we were freaking out, uh, and about it and really, you know, thinking about like, what was the ultimate goals of these bans? It wasn't just to outlaw abortion, put a, a six week ban in Georgia. It was really, um, to create challenges uh, that could be brought to the Supreme Court. We also knew that the Supreme Court was heavily stacked uh, to be conservative uh, and a very undemocratic body that is not um, responsive to public will, right? Uh, the Supreme Court justices serve lifetime appointments. They're not elected. Um, they don't have a population that they're beholden to. So what is the way uh, that we can uh, put pressure on them? Uh, and what we decided uh, was the only way um, to prevent uh, Roe versus Wade from being overturned was mass disruptive civil disobedience and uh, financial strikes that would hurt capital. Now, this was naive in several ways. Um, as we have seen over the past year, you know, we thought we had more time. First of all, we thought it was going to take two to three years um, for these challenges to work their way through the Supreme Court. That was false. Um, we are already seeing challenges this year to abortion access, to birth control access, which follows um, the pattern of conservative challenge, legal challenges to abortion, which is not, you know, trying to chop the head off of Roe versus Wade. It's all of these insidious challenges, tweaks and trap laws to further undermine abortion access. And then, of course, now under COVID, we are seeing outright abortion bans, such as the one in Texas. Um, 
And so our timeline has been um, very much pushed up. And so we're not, uh, I mean, abortion <laughs> has always been under attack for decades. It will continue to be under attack. And so what we are interested in is building a nationwide infrastructure that is capable of taking um, assertive action uh, to protect abortion access and to expand abortion access. Um, well, one of the things that we're going to be talking about um, in the second half of the show um, today is sort of the the overarching political discourse around abortion and um, the argument that many people on the left are now making, which is that the, the left has really been lacking a strong, organized, as you say, militant response to protect abortion access. So before we dig back into um, the mass strike and what you're working on right now, um, I'm curious if you can talk to me a little bit about that piece of it, uh, the big picture, abortion access from a socialist feminist perspective. What is the framework that you're working with um, with your organizing and why is abortion a socialist issue? Yeah, I mean, abortion is a socialist issue because you cannot have liberation without full bodily autonomy, um, point blank. Uh, and there is a there's a whole vast, um, you know, there's a lot within, like, what is bodily autonomy, right? That includes trans rights, that includes uh, disability rights, a whole host of things. Um, but the framework that we are working under uh, is uh, the reproductive justice framework, Um we are not calling this a reproductive justice campaign because DS, this is a DSA campaign. Um, DSA is a mostly white organization. Uh, there, I hope, and I, I think we are, I hope you all are working towards changing that, but that is just the material reality on the ground. And I don't think um, we help ourselves any by shying away from that fact. Um, and since reproductive justice uh, is a concept that has really been developed and led and fought for by um, black activists, by indigenous um, women and, and women of color, we really want to um, honor their work um, by not sort of appropriating it. Mm -hmm. um, so that's why we're calling this the mass strike for reproductive freedom. But what is reproductive justice? Um, Sister Song, which is one of the organizations um, that was developed to, uh, that came out of this movement, uh, defines reproductive justice as the human right to maintain bodily autonomy, have children, not have children, and parent the children we have in safe and sustainable communities. Uh, this is really uh, reacting to the mainstream feminist movements uh, that define abortion through choice, through legal rights, right? Um, and if you, you know, it, you can have all of the laws in the book, or really ideally no laws around abortion, because that's the ultimate goal, is to not regulate abortion the way we don't regulate heart surgery, frankly. Um, but, you know, like you, you can, if you don't have money to pay for an abortion, you you don't have that choice, right? If you can't find childcare, um, you know, there are all these barriers to actually ha getting an abortion that are not represented under this very liberal rights framework. Um, not to mention the other side of the coin, which is, you know, if you do want to have children, there's all of these ways um, that under our deeply racist and capitalist society, um, 
black and brown bodies are criminalized, um, they are harmed, you know, black maternal health uh, is, uh, you know, is facing steep disparities um, from white maternal health. Um, And so reproductive justice is um, a framework trying to combat, uh, you know, and expand the fight for abortion access um, from simply being about abortion. Uh, This was, so just going into the history a little bit, it was developed by a group of black women in Chicago in June of 1994. Uh, They recognized that the women's rights movement at the time, which was led and represented by a lot of middle-class white wealthy women, could not, just could not defend the needs of women of color and other marginalized women and trans people. And then so after this first initial gathering, one of the first things they did um, was uh, put out a full page ad in the Washington Post on August 16th, um, 1994. It's a beautiful letter. I, you know, Google like Washington Post reproductive justice, like it'll come up. Um, And I really recommend all your listeners read through the whole thing because it was a pretty revolutionary text at the time. Um, It didn't use the term Medicare for all, but it called for universal and equal access um, to health services that included no co-pays or deductibles, um, which is, you know, basically Medicare for all. It, it, um, you know, called for comprehensive coverage, which situated abortion um, within like a larger scope of sexual health, um, you know, and referenced, um, access to STI and HIV testing, um, which the AIDS epidemic was still raging um, full time. And the other thing that I think is important is like, it, it was 1994 during the Clinton's health um, healthcare reform, uh, which ultimately failed um, despite being uh, very liberal and not meeting uh, many of the... Despite you know, being very liberal. Interesting choice of words. <laughs> no, it, it just, it, it, you know, it, to, to bring it back to, like, the, the Obamacare days, right? It's like, I think these liberals, it's that liberal strategy of, like, oh, we have to preemptively compromise, but that doesn't work. It fails anyway. Conservatives, Republicans, they just don't want to give these things to people. So why are we not asking? Why are we not demanding for the things that we need in the first place instead of trying to compromise? Mm-hmm. Yada yada. Yeah. Um, so um, I guess do, going back to like what all of these things mean um, for the mass strike for reproductive freedom is that um, we are situating, you know, we are primarily fighting for abortion access, um, but we are trying to incorporate a whole sort of um, reproductive, you know, all of reproductive labor. Um, within this campaign, um, uh, which includes things like, uh, I think mutual aid is incredibly important to reproductive justice. We don't often, you know, uh, DSA does a lot of like fundraising for abortions, for abortion funds, um, and that is mutual aid, right? Like giving, helping people get rides to their abortion, um, you know, paying for travel, paying for child care paying for the actual abortion, right? These are mutual aid. This is mutual aid. Um, and I think it doves tails into other mutual aid efforts that we're really seeing at the time, right? Like grocery delivery um, and uh, tenant uh, organizing. Mm-hmm. Um, we're also trying to incorporate workers' rights um, into reproductive 
justice, um, you know, uh, your ability to control your reproduction really affects your work, um, right? How many of us, I, we live in a country where childcare is more expensive than college, right? And that directly impacts uh, pregnant people's abilities and parents' abilities to participate in the labor force. Um, specifically right now, we are um, very interested in connecting to reproductive health workers. Um, Emily and Anne are going to get into this um, in, you know, in the second half of the episode, but um, the workers, you know, abortions are still going on. They are essential health care um, that are not, that should not, cannot be delayed under this um, health crisis of COVID-19, um, which means that uh, we're seeing an increase, A, we're seeing an increase of people who want abortions. Um, we're seeing, you know, clinics are under further strain. There's shortages of PPE. There's struggles. Um with uh, implementing social distancing at work, right? All of the same things that we're struggling with are uh, being compounded by the already sorry state of abortion access in America. Right. Um, so what we're trying to do is start to organize reproductive health workers, get them talking together, get them organizing and agitating within their workplace um, in order to help build some of these national stru um, structures that will lead to... Um, Coordinated Radical Action for Abortion Access. Coordinated Radical Action for Abortion Access. That's the mass strike for reproductive freedom. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, uh, Jen, James, for um, coming to speak with me here on RPM. We're going to dig more into everything that you just spoke about in our second half of the show. So please uh, stay tuned. And Jen, thanks again. Stay well. Okay, thank you for having me. Hi, everyone. It's Amy Wilson. You're listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener-sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today we're talking about abortion access. Um, and before we get into our live interview for today, um, I do want to take a moment out of the show um, to mention that WBAI is still in um, our spring fundraising drive. Donations to nonprofits have dropped across the board um, since the COVID-19 pandemic descended for extremely understandable reasons. But if you do have any spare cash that you can give to the station, um, this week we want to take a moment to specifically encourage you to become a BAI buddy, which is a sustaining monthly donor. It doesn't have to be much that you give um, every month. could be $5, could even be $3 a month. Um, but that um, continuous source of support is really important for us um, to keep the station operating. One thing to know about becoming a BAI buddy is that once your annual contribution meets or exceeds $25 for the year, you also become a voting member of the station, which, in my opinion, is really the greatest benefit of being a BAI buddy, um, even though the tote bag that you get is also super cool. Uh, at Revolutions Per Minute, we're all about community control of institutions and democracy in action. We're a part of a great 
great strip of programming every week in the five to six o'clock hour, this very important time when people are um, commuting from their living rooms to their dining rooms at the end of their remote work day. Um, but we're part of this this great uh, a group of programs that focuses primarily on New York City local news and politics, um, which is a voice that's desperately needed. But in order to be the voice of the people of New York City, we need the people of New York City to get involved and tell us what you want from the station. Um, the producers of WBAI, like myself, give a lot of unpaid hours to the station to keep local community-based programming like ours going. So we really appreciate the support that you're showing for our efforts when you choose to become a BAI buddy, which once again is a monthly uh, contribution. Uh, to give to the station, if you've been convinced by my pitch here to give to the station, please call 516-620-3602. Once again, that's 516-620-3602. Or you can go to wbai.org to sign up as a monthly co uh, contributor. And thank you so much. And of course, shout out always to the amazing staff of uh, WBAI, especially our regular producer here in our time slot, um, Reggie. Um, it's been amazing working together to try to move everything um, online and remote during this moment of clearly unprecedented situation for radio. Um, so shout out to the staff as well. With that said, um, I'd love to bring my two guests uh, for today live on the air. Emily and Anne, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. I'm here. Great. Uh, so welcome uh, to Revolutions Per Minute. Um, first, let's uh, start off by uh, hearing a little bit about each of you. Um, who are you? What is your connection to abortion access? And Anne, why don't you get us started? Um, sure. My name is Anne. Um, I'm a member of um, NYC DSA's Socialist Feminist Working Group, and I'm also a member of NYC for Abortion Rights, um, which is a group that formed about three years ago, uh, focusing on direct action in support of abortion rights in New York City. Thank you for coming on the show uh, today, Anne. Uh, Emily, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, so, yep. So my name's Emily. My pronouns are she, her, and I am an a, abortion care worker. Um, I do intake, financial counseling, and procedure counseling in an abortion clinic. Thank you. Thanks for, for having us. <laughs> I almost said thanks for having us, and then I realized I'm the one who's technically having <laughs> you. <laughs> Um, okay, so, so digging into our, our topic for today, um, abortion access and the mass strike for reproductive freedom, um, Jen, in the first half of the show, talked a little bit about how one of the initiatives of the mass strike is organizing reproductive health care workers themselves, which as uh, a socialist feminist and a unionist, I think is an incredibly generative idea that's fascinating as well. So my first question is for you, Emily, um, if you could talk a little bit about the situation on the ground for workers in abortion clinics right now, what are the major workplace issues that you envision um, organizing reproductive healthcare workers around or on? Yeah. Um, so before I answer that question, I think it's important to understand the ways in which abortion uh, reproductive health care work is a little bit different because we do even normally before 
um, the pandemic started, there were a number of different obstacles that we have in front of us when we're trying to work with patients and providing care. Um, there's a lot of delays and wait period legislation, both in our state and the states surrounding us, because we do serve patients from a tri-state area um, just because of those regulations and restrictions. Um, so we are serving patients from three different states. Um, so there's a lot of things to factor in there. And then also just uh, required uh, state counseling that needs to occur within a certain wait period before the procedure occurs. Um, and then, of course, the Hyde Amendment prevent always presenting an issue because people who have a Medicaid health insurance do not have coverage, uh, which causes a lot of financial issues because I do financial counseling. And then because there's people coming from three different states, uh, there's also transportation issues and work issues if people can't get off work that are always an obstacle for everyone, both patients and staff who are working with those patients. So, um with with the escalation of the global pandemic and everything that happened here in the United States with everything being shut down and things being deemed non-essential or essential services, it really exacerbated a lot of the issues that staff and workers were already facing and patients were already facing. It became more difficult for the patients, which was already difficult for the patients to access abortion services. And then it became even more difficult for the staff to provide those services as well. And it was interesting with the whole categorization of essential versus non-essential health services because we saw a lot of states giving um, abortion providers a very hard time. Some of them ended up working out okay, like in Ohio, where abortion clinics were somewhat, they were allowed to offer more services than other states compared to Texas, where they virtually, I mean, they did actually go without um abortion services on and off for over a month's period of time. So some states were worse off than others. Uh, we see patients in Ohio where I'm at. So there was a lot of mass confusion that started at the time, which both patients and workers had to to work through. And we saw an increase in harassment, which affects both workers and patients um, with everything and the whole battle of what's essential and what's not essential. But ultimately, uh, we were able to see that abortion care was named an essential service and we were able to continue to operate. But it was interesting for us as the workers because um, our work days, which were already really difficult, became so much more difficult so quickly. I went from working like seven, eight hour days to working like 10, 11 hour days. Um, I went to... From, I went to working six days a week. Um, you know, we were just all of the other workers and the staff were just doing everything that they could to bend over backwards to provide this really valuable care. We were being called essential workers and we were being told that we were heroes and that we were valued. But it really highlighted the things that we'd been talking about before where it's like, how much money are we making? You know, what kind of benefits do we see? What kind of, what, what do our schedules look like? What does our transportation assistance look like? You know, do we have parental leave and childcare and things like that? So it, it was interesting to all of a sudden be in this situation where people are calling us essential workers, but we don't get treated like that. And we don't have uh, these, these benefits and, and we don't get treated well as workers. So it, the only way to survive that 
the stress of the environment because it really it it's already an, a, a workplace where you do often get trauma exposed and then everything just got even more exacerbated when everybody didn't have a job and our patients needs were so much higher than they initially already were mm-hmm. um, we really all needed to band together and support one another to even like get through these the challenging days and uh, it it you know, now it, it just we began to start having those conversations about, you know, what do we want our workplace conditions to be like? What is the reality of those workplace conditions? What do we want them to be? What do we need? We began having those conversations, which was uh, really amazing because it does it, it sometimes you do feel alienated when you're in a, a reproductive health care worker because you don't often get included in the conversations about health care work and uh organizing and unionization so um i feel like it's been a really interesting couple of months absolutely and and so much of what you said about being called an essential worker but not given any material benefits that would reflect that status we've heard that from nurses we but we've also heard that from grocery store workers transit workers restaurant industry workers it's something that you know is is like really coming to the fore now in this moment of the the COVID-19 pandemic. And what I think is so interesting about the mass strike approach is that it's seeing the abortion clinic as a work site, as well as a site of uh, healthcare. So speaking of um, healthcare on a very um, material and and down-to-earth level, one thing that uh, we did want to make sure to address on this show is that, you know, we we never know who might be listening uh, when we're broadcasting on 99.5 FM and and streaming on your favorite podcast app. So if somebody listening right now is in the situation or knows somebody who's in the situation of needing an abortion under this pandemic condition, what would you recommend that they do? Um, I definitely really recommend first and foremost that if you know there's an abortion provider near you, you should call them. I think that a lot of people are often really nervous to reach out to the providers because they feel like there's all these steps uh, that they have to undergo. But like when you call a provider, you get you get me like I'm on the phone and I am going to walk you through everything and I'm going to like answer all your questions. So, um, yeah, there's definitely a lot of amazing people who, you know, a lot of abortion care workers who are there to help you. So definitely reach out and call them. And then also you can reach out to an abortion fund near you. You can go to abortionfunds.org uh, to find an abortion fund near you if you don't know where there is one because they're a really great uh, collective of funds on a national level that assist people with transportation and medical costs and housing costs related to accessing abortion services uh, there. So you can look near an abortion fund near you. And if you're interested in learning about self-managed abortion and what those options are, there's a really good website called plancpills.org, which has a report card, which is pretty, uh, pretty amazing. Um, so all of those are really good resources, whether it's your local abortion provider or whether you're accessing a website or a fund. They're all uh, great people and great resources. 
Wonderful. Well, well, thank you for providing us with, us with a little bit of abortion counseling um, pro bono. We really appreciate that. Um, so uh, this is a nationwide issue, and it's a nationwide campaign, actually, the Mass Strike for Reproductive Freedom. And we have Emily, through the magic of um, remote broadcasting, we have Emily, who is working outside of, of New York City. But Anne, um, if you wouldn't mind, tell me a little bit about what organizing for abortion access looks like here in New York. You were on Revolutions Per Minute um, a few months ago, right when the pandemic was starting to descend, talking about the Love Life campaign and your efforts uh, with your organization to counteract that. So tell me a little bit about what that looks like now. And if you can, um, speak a little bit on why New York City has become a target for anti-abortion agitators. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think it's good to start out with um, bringing up the fact that New York uh, State is plays a really pivotal role in the history of legalized abortion. Um, so New York State was one of the first states to legalize abortion in 1973, so three years before Roe v. Wade was passed in the Supreme Court. Um, and New York State also pioneered the standalone abortion clinic model, um, so that kind of changed the whole way that abortion care uh, was provided. Um, in many cases, these standalone abortion clinics um, were set up um, in partnership with feminist activists and feminist organizations, um, and they were set up to serve as many patients as possible um, in welcoming environments that were more often free from the more patriarchal healthcare system. Um, and they also made the, the procedure as affordable as possible. So in a lot of hospitals, um, abortion care was really uh, financially not possible for many patients. Um, and these standalone clinics um, that were first set up in New York uh, made abortion affordable for, for many people. Um, the other significant thing in New York happened just last year. Um, in January 2019, the Reproductive Health Act was passed um, in New York State, and that was a really big deal. Um, it did a lot of things. It codified Roe v. Wade protections into state law, um, and it decriminalized. It took abortion um, out of the criminal code, um, and it also legalized abortion after 24 weeks of pregnancy if a woman's health is at risk. Um, and it also um, allowed patients, uh, allowed physicians, and some advanced practice clinicians. Um, so that includes physician assistants and nurse practitioners and licensed midwives to provide abortion care. Um, so it just made the procedure much more accessible. Um, and when the New York, when the Reproductive Health Act was passed in New York last year, it really upset a lot of anti-abortion uh, activists. Um, so a lot of anti-abortion activists see New York and especially New York City as the abortion capital of the country. Mm -hmm. um, so it's been a target um, by a lot of anti-abortion organizations, um, especially since this Reproductive Health Act was passed. Um, so the group that we've been focusing on is called Love Life, and they're a Christian anti-abortion group. They were formed in 2016 in North Carolina, and they set up a headquarters in New York City last fall. Um, they are a very well-funded and well-organized group. They're an affiliate of about 300 different uh, churches nationwide, um, and their whole goal is to try to convince as many patients to uh, to um, not get abortions as possible. 
Um, and they do this by hosting prayer walks outside of abortion clinics in three different cities in North Carolina and in New York City outside of the Planned Parenthood Clinic on Bleecker Street. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have been able to mobilize hundreds of people, um, over 150 people every single Saturday morning. Um, they show up outside of the Planned Parenthood Clinic. They also train sidewalk counselors um, who are basically uh, trained to intercept and use misleading information to try to convince people not to enter the clinic and not to go through with their choice to get an abortion. Um, So they're a very powerful and scary group. I mean, I think the other thing that NYC for Abortion Rights is doing is making connections between um, anti-abortion protesters like this group Love Life and many others um, and uh, how they intersect with uh, white supremacist and misogynist movements uh, not connected to abortion organizing. Um, so we've seen a lot of violence against patients, against clinic workers, against uh, abortion providers. Um, and this violence against providers has a long history. Um, you know, Operation Rescue uh, is a, a very good example of the violence that um, these anti-abortion protesters um bring upon clinics and uh, clinic workers. Um, And we're seeing an uptick right now in uh, really aggressive anti-abortion protesters outside of clinics around the country um, and threats of violence against patients and clinic workers around the country. Um, So it's a really serious issue. And it's, um, you know, there's a lot of differing opinions about how to challenge these anti-abortion protesters. Um, and we don't have to get into all of the nuances of those different positions, but it, I do think it's really significant for the left to, uh, to, to mobilize effectively and to challenge these anti-abortion protesters, um, whether they're outside of our clinics or they're at their churches or they're in public spaces, um, but just to create a, a movement that recognizes the danger that these anti-abortion protesters pose and the connections that they have made between uh, you know, all of these other, um, you know, right wing violent movements. Absolutely. And I agree that that could be a whole topic of a show um, in and of itself. Um, so we'll have to have you back uh, to discuss that. So uh, everyone, you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsored WBAI in New York City, broadcasting at 99.5 FM streaming on your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to connect with us after the show, please email revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can look at our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com, or find us on Twitter at NYCRPM. Today we're talking about abortion access, and I do want to note, um, because of the um, remote broadcasting technology, um, unfortunately we won't be able to take listener calls for this show. I would really like to. Um, it's, it's not because I don't want to hear um, what you have to say about abortion listeners. In fact, I would, I would love to hear it, but it's just a, a limitation of um, the uh, broadcasting service that we're using um, for everybody's health and safety. So we do appreciate your understanding of that. So um, I have Emily and Anne here on the show with me uh, to talk about the mass strike for reproductive freedom, which there's a lot of ways that people listening um, can get involved and spread the word on. Um, but before we uh, talk about those specific ways and the, and the things that the mass strike is doing in terms of organizing, um, I'd like to hit you, Emily and Anne, with what I hope isn't a curveball question, but has something that's been on my mind today in preparing for the show, which is, 
why are we not using the phrase pro-choice? Let's dig into that a little bit. That's a very common um, way of describing uh, the sort of political tendency that believes that abortion should should exist and, and be legal and all of those nice things. But an astute listener might notice that we haven't used it at all over the course of the show. So I'm going to throw that over to you. And uh, I'm very curious to hear your, your thoughts on the question. And just to make it easier, since we can't see each other, um, let's start with you, Emily. So this goes back to um, the framework and the analysis that, that Sister Song started with reproductive justice, because um, I know that and when I read about them, they found that the pro-choice like rhetoric that goes with pro-choice, anti-choice doesn't work for black women in the United States because there's not always a situation in which uh, there really is a real choice when it comes to bodily autonomy and reproductive decision making, um, I found this to be the case as an abortion care worker because people are so limited and just um, at mercy of so many different things that work against them in this capitalist society. For example, um, work, <laughs> the like just not being able to take days off, not having sick days, not being able to uh, have a stable job, not being able to have stable housing, not being able to live in a safe environment is something that comes up a lot. Um, not being able to be free from violence and that includes state violence and from police and prisons and incarceration um incarceration does split up families it's just an important thing to remember and i see that a lot at work unfortunately there's just so many things that rob an individual of an actual ability to like freely choose um and have control over their lives that the term pro-choice is just really inadequate and you know i i would i would agree that it, it just it is reality does seem to support that that it's just choice is a very complicated topic mm-hmm. absolutely well said um and do you have anything that you'd like to add on on that question yeah no i would completely agree um you know, it, there there's not much of a choice when access is so limited right now. So it's really, a, you know, a racial and a class issue um, where, you know, people who can afford to travel to a clinic and to um, pay the cost of an abortion, the average cost of an abortion is $500. Um, and because of the Hyde Amendment, there's no federal funding um, available for abortion care. Um, so if people don't can't actually access abortion, then it's not much of a choice. So it, it just kind of divides um, it divides people uh, by uh, their financial ability to receive abortion care. And um, we're obviously fighting for everybody to have access to abortion. And that's why uh, the demand on the left is for free abortion on demand, um, that there should be access to everybody, that abortion should be free, um, and it should be uh, equally available to everybody who needs it. Mm-hmm. I think as well that part of my response to the, the framing of pro-choice is that it's so individual and it leads to that type of counter-organizing where you have people confronting a patient on the sidewalk trying to, quote, get them to make a different choice. And I think 
the liberal acceptance of that framework of, oh, it's pro-choice versus pro-life. I can't even say the words pro-life, like my, my stomach starts to turn because the ideology is so not um, life-affirming. Um, but I think the, the liberal acceptance of the framework and the dichotomy has really led us to this very scary place that we're in right now with abortion access, where to say that we're, we were already on the ropes um, in this type of organizing, and then the pandemic descended and, and things just got um heightened to a to an unbelievably catastrophic um degree not to be not to editorialize too much um but since we do have these these two wonderful organizers um emily and ann from mass strike for reproductive freedom new york city for abortion rights uh socialist feminist working group uh please uh talk to our listeners about how they can get involved with what you're doing Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wasn't sure if like Anne wanted to go first. I can share a couple of our social media handles. Um, there's a number of different things that we're doing, like different ways that you can plug in. Um, the Instagram, if you are on Instagram, is at DSA Mass Strike. So yes, there are three S's. And <laughs> on Twitter, it is pulling that up really quick don't mind me i'm pretty oh it's just mass underscore strike on twitter mm-hmm. and uh and do you want to talk about some of the different things that we're doing um with the mass strike yeah there's a great reading group that's going on um that's starting this saturday um and we're reading rosa luxemburg's mass strike together um so that's going to be a reading group that's happening every other saturday Um, starting this Saturday, May 30th. Um, And at NYC for Abortion Rights, um, we have our next meeting on Wednesday, June 3rd at 7 p.m. And we are planning a virtual event um, where we're going to be talking to um, clinic escorts and clinic workers um, from different parts of the country um, and just hearing report backs about the anti-abortion protesting that's going on outside of their clinics um, and strategizing with these clinic workers around the country about what an effective challenge can look like um, to these anti-abortion protesters and how we can kind of build a movement that challenges the anti-abortion uh, right. Wonderful. And what about um, for folks who might be connected to um, uh a worker in uh, an abortion clinic or a reproductive health worker, um, is there a way that they can get involved with the worksite organizing that you're doing? Oh, yes. There is a survey um, that people can access. It's called, uh, it's the Surveying Reproductive Healthcare Workers. Um, and there is a bit.ly link. It's just um, bit.ly uh, backslash repro health survey. Um, and if you are a clinic worker, um, or know a clinic worker, please share that link. Um, we're collecting information um, about healthcare workers um, and how we can uh, organize and support them. Wonderful. Uh, and of course, we'll put all of those links um, on our Twitter at NYCRPM, and we'll put them in the uh, show notes for today's episode as well, so that those who are interested in, in learning more and getting involved in this organizing um, will know where to go. So as we uh, come to the end of this week's edition of Revolutions Per Minute, uh, focusing on abortion access for the first, but not the last time here um, on the show, um, I'd like to open the floor back up to you, um, 
my guests, Emily and Anne. Uh, do you have closing or final thoughts that you'd like um, our listening audience to know on this topic? Um, I would just say that I think it's really important that we um, look back to the you know movement that won us abortion rights in the first place um, and revisit their demands, which were much more radical than what we actually got. Um, I think this ties into the pro-choice framework that we were talking about earlier, um, that we really can't look to, uh, you know, liberal politicians and NGOs um, to get us out of this, that we really need to connect the demands for reproductive justice to other demands such as uh, Medicare for all, um, affordable housing, transit justice, um, paid parental leave and paid sick leave. Um, you know, all of these demands are connected to uh, our right to liberation and to bodily autonomy. And I think drawing those connections um, in reproductive rights organizing is really important, especially right now. Yeah, I would also like to uh, say on the topic of abortion access that I would really love to see socialists recognize um, how care work is tied to everything else. Like abortion access is tied to everything else that we're fighting for because it involves housing and it involves labor and it involves um, and it involves wages and money and it involves childcare and it involves like all of these th different things, um, transportation and transit that I, I would love to see just like the recognition of uh, abortion access um, and it's tied to all of these different things and the recognition of the importance of organizing care workers, not just in um, abortion clinics and reproductive health care clinics, but just all different kinds of care work. Um, you know, I want people to talk about Medicare for all and talk about uh, health care workers, but then also talk about abortion clinic workers and people who are providing STD testing as well and things like that. Um, I just want to see all of these workers included and I want to see abortion brought into the larger conversation because I think it's just historically been siloed off into its own issue and its own thing. And it really is tied to bodily autonomy and community. And I think that people really need to recognize it and bring it in to their conversations. Mm -hmm. Well, it was it was Jen in the first half of the show who said there is no liberation without bodily autonomy, point blank. And to me, that's that's if any if you take away one thing from this show, I would suggest that that would be it. I completely agree. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, to both of you um, for, for being on the show, for working together with me to develop it. Uh, folks, please do check out um, our show notes and um, our, our Twitter presence. We want you to, um, as always, be able to get involved um, with the organizing um, that we're doing um, in DSA and with our coalition partners. Now is the time. Um, we need everybody in this struggle. So um, grab a neighbor from six feet away and, and do what you can to um, help please help us build uh, the better world. So thank you so much again, Emily and Anne, for, for being with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thank you and, for letting us talk about this. Oh, anytime. Um, I'm Amy Wilson. This has been uh, Revolutions Per Minute. Uh, we will see you next week, Tuesday at 5 p.m. for another uh, edition of our uh, organizing. <laughs>